This week on Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the final entry of Daredevil 101. Before Daredevil, there was a down-on-his-luck prize fighter named Battlin' Jack Murdoch. All my life I've been searching for something, something never comes, never leads to nothing, nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close, closer to the prize at the end of the rope. All night long, a dream of the day, when it comes around and it's taken away, leaves me with the feeling that I feel the most, feel it come to life when I see your ghost. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the podcast all about Marvel Comics' Blind Lawyer by Day, Vigilante by Night, and Netflix superstar Daredevil. I am your host, J. David Weeder. This is episode 55, the final installment of my Daredevil 101 series, where it's been all number ones all the time. This episode is no exception, except I'm adding a number two in there. You'll see why when we get there. Just a reminder that all you have to do is share this episode on Facebook or Twitter, to be entered to win the issues I am covering this week via Comixology. That's right, it's that easy. Share the episode posting, you're entered to win, I will choose a winner later in the week. Before we progress with the comic talk this week, some bad news. The email address is busted. Permanently busted. Don't know exactly what occurred, I never got an answer on what occurred, but it is not receiving mail. I've tried testing it out several times, it's just, it's done. So, going forward, I have established a new email address, which you might have seen on Facebook or Twitter. The new address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Mail, M-A-I-L, at daredevilpodcast.com. And if you go to daredevilpodcast.com, the contact form in the upper right-hand corner is updated to reflect that. So, I do apologize for that. What I will be doing later in the episode is cleaning out the last of the emails. So, if you do not hear your email by the end of this episode and you sent an email before the end of March, please, please resend that. I would love to read your email, but it didn't get to me due to technical difficulties. See, we can't have nice things. I do have one quick note I have to make a correction, and I hate doing these, but I caught it in editing. It wasn't something that could be cut out easily, and it was something minute, but it was the fact that I said Matt was eight years old when he had the accident that blinded him, and that is not correct. This week I re-examined Daredevil number one, and realized, no, no, Matt was probably closer to 14, 15. Jack and Matt had the special talk when Matt was eight years old, but Matt had actually aged a few years, so I apologize for that. Now, there are origins, there are prequels, and usually they're, you know, mutually exclusive, but when done right, when you can actually merge those two concepts, you have something special, which is a true point of origin, something where you are enlightened. You see the origin in a different aspect, and this week... We're talking about that very concept because we're looking at Battlin' Jack Murdoch, a miniseries from a few years back. And on a show that discusses Daredevil, Jack's pretty darn important. Matt really looks at Jack as almost a totem, sort of his spirit animal of sorts. It's his inspiration, it's his motivation, and without Jack Murdoch, as we're going to see, there would never be a Daredevil, period. And we've never really explored that aspect of the Daredevil mythology until now. So it's a... It's a pair of issues I'm excited to talk about. I've been wanting to talk about these for a long time. They've been on the list in a nebulous place, so it's a perfect time to bring these out. So I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we're going to talk all about Battling Jack Murdoch. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I've been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I've been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. 
Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Welcome back. And this week, I am very, very excited. I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I'm excited to talk about not only the issues at hand, but also what it kind of inspired in me when I revisited them. A little peek behind the curtain. I did some of these initial notes way back before the end of 2014. This was originally slated for a different episode, but I put it aside and kind of continued down the path that we've been down so far. So knowing that I was going to be taking this out of mothballs and revisiting it, went over all the notes and went a different direction in some cases. But the material inspired a lot of thought in me over this past week when I was re-examining it. So we're looking at the first two issues of a four-issue miniseries revolving around Battle and Jack Murdoch. Behind this project is Carmine D.G. Amenico, who is an artist from Marvel Italia, which is, of course, the Italian branch of Marvel Comics. He pitched and plotted this whole project. This is his baby. And the reason is because he wanted to know who Jack was beyond Matt's perception. We never got to know Jack. Jack was a dead character when we entered into the book. We've only seen him in flashbacks. D.G. Amenico has done some American work, a 2004 iteration of Amazing Fantasy. He did the Vegas storyline along with Carl Kiesel who also has a Daredevil connection. More recently, he was the artist on the all-new X-Factor book with Peter David, and sadly, that's been canceled at this stage. And I gotta tell you folks, I watched a video of this guy doing work, and he blew my mind. He goes straight to inks in some cases and does some amazing things. I watched him paint a Spider-Man image with, and I kid you not, no lines on the page. And it was a striking image, and I kept looking at the video, I'm like, is he painting over pencils? I did not see any pencils. Blank page, painted in almost like negative space and did this striking, amazing Spider-Man image. So he's a very talented, talented artist. He was combined with Zeb Wells. Now, Zeb Wells got into comics via a contest for Wizard Magazine for fan films. He did a film called Real World Metropolis. This fan film got the attention of Axel Alonso, and he asked Wells for a pitch. And Wells pitched a Spider-Man story for the anthology Spider-Man's Tangled Web, which ended up being fantastic. This led to a lot more Marvel work. More recently, he's been writing the Marvel Now Nova, He's also working with Robot Chicken on their Star Wars and DC Comics specials. So the creative team was assembled to create this four-issue miniseries of a time period we've never really seen before. And this week I'm focusing on Daredevil Battling Jack Murdoch number one and two. And these are cover dated August 2007 and September 2007 respectively. Looking at the first issue's cover, the cover is a close-up of Jack Murdoch's gnarled face as he punches his opponent. Blood flies everywhere as Jack's fist crashes into the other fighter's face. It's gruesome. There's a lot of line work here, but it's used to a good purpose. Because, well, it's kind of like war is hell. So is boxing. And on top of this intense boxing battle, Jack's in his own personal hell, as we're going to see. Because this is an atypical story, and this is an atypical cover. It borders on the graphic, and it should, I guess, for this. Just because of the nature of the story, and the nature of what we're really seeing in this image, which is Jack Murdoch's last stand. And the entire series is reprinted in a single trade paperback of the same name. It's also available on Marvel Digital, Comixology, and Digital Unlimited. Round 1! Jack Murdock enters the ring of the fateful fight, and he has one thing on his mind. He has to take a dive in the fourth round. With his son Matt in the audience, Jack lays some blows on his opponent, Crusher Creel. As the fight progresses forward, Jack's mind moves backwards to a time when he helped Sweeney muscle for protection money. On one occasion, Jack, along with a smooth-talking associate named Slade, urged a store owner to pay up as Jack stood around with a bat. The owner, who knows Jack, says if Maggie could see you now. This strikes a nerve in Jack, and the washed-up boxer begins bashing everything in sight before his associate ushers him out of the store and derides the behavior. Later at Cafe Josie, the owner, the eponymous Josie, spots Jack for a beer. She too mentions Maggie and how Jack is throwing his life away after that girl broke his heart. Jack blows up at Josie but settles down and apologizes before getting his money from the fixer via a very young Turk. Jack returns home to find Maggie waiting for him in the hallway, and she has a surprise 
a baby boy named Matthew. Maggie tells Jack that their relationship was a sin and that she has joined a nunnery, but she cannot keep Matthew. Maggie leaves Jack all alone with the baby and Jack slowly becomes unraveled, yelling, throwing things, and the infant begins to cry. Jack calms himself down and takes his son into his arms. In the present, the bell rings and the first round ends with only three rounds left until Jack must make a fateful decision. Okay, I'm going to stop there at the end of this issue and we're going to talk about this issue as a whole rather than the segments. We open to the fight in Madison Square Garden, which is absolutely correct per issue number one, as well as issue number 164 that retold the origin. So this is a big time fight. This isn't some small rinky-dink arena. This is the garden. Jack Murdoch has arrived at the show. And it didn't occur to me until going through this issue, because it for some reason just didn't stand out previously, but if Jack is at Madison Square Garden, which we've confirmed, that means in issue 43 of Daredevil's first volume, when Daredevil meets up with Captain America and they box, they're at the garden. That means Daredevil boxed Captain America at the very same place as Jack's last fight. Now that story didn't take time to acknowledge it, nor did it need to because, well, Daredevil was on the crazy pills. He had some radiation going on. But I kind of like that idea of Daredevil fighting a man that's his father's age at that same place. In this instance of the story, as well as a couple of others, we see that the opponent is one Crusher Creel. And that name should sound familiar not only because of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series, but Crusher Creel is also the Absorbing Man. Now somehow, Creel goes from here to prison at some point in the near future. And while in prison, he gets a potion from Loki that gives him the ability to absorb whatever he touches. This is a retcon. We also see it in Daredevil Yellow and other places, but both Daredevil number one and Daredevil issue number 164 identified the opponent as Rocky Dynamite Davis. Now, I'm not going to really knock points off, because it's nice to tie it into the Marvel Universe proper, and of course, it's always cool to see the Absorbing Man. It gives a sense of continuity, I guess, prior to what we come into in the Marvel Universe proper. And looking at these pages as Jack is walking into the fight and the garden is full, it's chock full, I get a sense of, of a nervousness, a little bit of anticipation. The thing is, we know the outcome of this. We know what happens, essentially. We've learned it after the fact. It's kind of like King Kong, though. Every time you watch it, you kind of hope that the ending changes a little bit. But you're kind of filled with that feeling of dread because you know how this ends. You're looking at a dead man walking. And as I kind of mentioned at the top here, it takes a while to get used to the idea of looking at Jack as a living, breathing character. For Daredevil fans, Jack's been dead for the majority of the publishing career. We've only seen him in flashback. He is an idea, and we get glimpses at him, but it's almost always from Matt's perception. And I've talked quite a bit about Matt whitewashing what he saw, who Jack was, which I found is a natural reaction to people. We don't want to speak ill of the dead. So we tend to exalt them after they're gone and overlook their flaws, great or small. And Jack gets into the ring and we talk about strength. Jack is strong, but there are people with power. And that's going up against each other in what we're seeing here in this fight. It's not just a boxing match. This is Jack Murdoch fighting for his soul. Jack has great physical strength as well as strength of will. But when you think about it, strength and will, well, you can put those under the category of what are things that won't help in a hurricane for $500, Alex. No matter how strong you are or how devout you are in your beliefs, you can't really go up against an unstoppable force. And in this instance, the Fixer is an unstoppable force. He has resources, influence, he has everything that could kill Jack either way. And of course, we know, spoiler, it does. And Jack's in very much a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. Jack can see Matt in the crowd, and he sees Matt leaning forward. And I've always wondered this, how much can Matt really take in? Because just sort of instinctively, he's leaning forward as if he can see. But later in the story, Matt says, I'm glad you're telling me what's going on, Foggy. I can't make out anything in this crowd's noise. So how much is Matt actually able to take in? And how much does that contribute to the irony of Jack's choice? That we're going to talk about a little bit later. Just want to earmark it here because Jack notices this and it has that emotional reaction. He looks at Matt as weak. Even though Matt is showing signs that he's trying to pay attention, Jack sees Matt as flawed, which... In some cases, the way we know Matt, yes, Matt is flawed in some cases. He's not a perfect human being. He wouldn't be interesting if he was. So the fight starts, and Jack gets in some really, really good blows. And, and these surprise Creel quite a bit. And Jack, you know, he may be taking a dive. That decision hasn't been made this early in the fight. 
But if he's going to take a dive, he's going to get in some good hits before he goes, right? And then naturally we jump into the flashback and we have sort of something piggybacking off of Man Without Fear in which we saw Jack muscled into working for Sweeney or the Fixer, whichever you want to call him. Except it kind of throws off that time frame quite a bit to see it here. See, in Man Without Fear, Jack was muscled because Sweeney and Slade used Matt's disability against Jack. They used Matt's inability to defend himself to make him a target. Because if it was just Jack, Jack would have told him to go to hell. No ifs, ands, or buts. You throw Matt in there, suddenly Jack's got an Achilles heel. Which is kind of a theme in this fight, you know? I mean, it's not a spoiler to step ahead and say Jack decides not to take the dive, which results in his untimely death. But the reasons he takes a dive is to show Matt that sometimes you have to stand up to a bully. Which, as we get into this story further, as we get closer and closer to that fateful decision, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about what it means for Jack to make that decision. But we see Jack standing in a store, muscling somebody well before he was supposed to be working for Sweeney. Jack doesn't have that Achilles heel, he has another Achilles heel, and that is Maggie. We quickly learn, just by inference, that Maggie has left Jack, and Jack's a little bit lost. He's lost his way. He's kind of lost his compass of sorts. And the Maggie story isn't told. It doesn't have to be. When we see Jack react, we pretty much get the whole shindig right there on his face. And the irony hasn't escaped me that Slade is standing here telling this business owner that, yeah, there are facts. You could call the cops, but the cops aren't here. A man with a club is. He outright says ideas, laws, they don't mean as much as a man with a club. Well, come on. It's Jack standing there holding a club. Daredevil's main weapon is a billy club. In his superhero guise, that's what he uses. In his civilian guise, he uses ideas and laws to do the right thing. Slade is basically saying in front of Jack that everything that Matt will one day represent is reversed. For Matt, it's the law and ideas first. That's his partial motivation of being Daredevil, at least his modus operandi, if you will. That the ideas and laws are what he's out to protect. The club is just a means to do that. In this, it's inverted, so the club is the law, which is a very, very nice touch. I don't know if, if Wells did that, but it was really well done. And the deeper irony is Jack would never see that come to fruition. We move on to Cafe Josie, which is a nicer version of Josie's Bar for a nicer time, almost like the Star Wars prequels. You see Jack has a drinking problem. Here's the thing, and I don't know really how I feel about it. Sometimes I see the merit, sometimes I don't. But what we've seen done to Jack is he's been turned into Eddie Valiant from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Eddie Valiant was once a great detective who fell into alcoholism after his brother's death. Jack was once a great fighter who fell into alcoholism after his, well, wife or girlfriend, we're not really sure, but Maggie left him. We'll call it that. And no matter how many times I've sliced this, I'm never 100% certain that the Josie we see in this story, the owner of Josie's Cafe, is the same Josie that we see later down the road in Josie's bar. If it is, that means Josie kind of lived hard and looks weathered by that point, and life has just worn her down by the time Daredevil is a presence. Which, of course, adds more to the tragedy of this story, as we're going to see a little bit later. So we've got a little bit of a cliche here, but at the same time, it's something where I am okay with it so far, because it's not an overpowering cliche. And we even get a cameo from Turk, a young Turk. He's just a wee boy. Did this guy ever have an honest day in his life, really? And Turk is perfectly played in character. He's telling Jack, one day you're going to work for me. Yep, vision he's got. And then we get to the real emotional ice pick to the soul, the heart-wrenching scene in which Maggie returns. It's not just heart-wrenching because she's dropping a baby on Jack. It's heart-wrenching because there's a moment where Jack really thinks she's coming back for him, but in turn she says that the love they shared, what they were doing with it, is a sin. You want to talk about hurtful, and she's not trying to be, but she's being a little more blunt than she needs to be in this case. What happened with Maggie and Jack meant the world to Jack. That was his happiness. That was his compass. And for her to not only say, I'm not coming back for you, I'm staying gone, but to add to that that what we did was wrong, that that thing that you cherish is tainted, holy cow, that's a lot to lay on a man. That is horrible, and it kind of left a little lump in my throat, a little pit of nausea in my stomach. Here's the further ice pick, if you will. If their love was a sin then Matt is a product of that. Therefore, Maggie is in effect saying that Matt is tainted. He's damaged goods. He's the result of something that should have never happened, the result of something that was wrong and disgusting. But Maggie drops the baby off at Jack's, takes off. So, 
I'm guessing this puts Matt at about three months, six months. He's clearly weaned and past the point where he would have to have that mother's protection. But do we ever really get past that point? And we see Jack go from disgust to this kid to love. Unlike Maggie, Jack does see that product of that union and Jack cherishes that union. So when he sees Matt, the ultimate physical representation of that union, it's a piece of Maggie. It's a piece of him and Maggie. And it's beautiful. Now, this miniseries exists in a nebulous place continuity-wise. There's a lot of things that are slightly contradicted within the main series. It's better taken as a character study, as a sort of woulda, coulda, shoulda. Not quite a what-if, but more this is how it could have happened. We've seen this contradicted multiple times. Mark Wade's run recently contradicted this, stating that Jack and Maggie were said to be married, which has been the party line up to this point. Thing is, when it comes to canon and continuity... That is comprised simply of what's on stands at that time. If we say this happened now, well, that's what's happening. That's it. Even if it contradicts before, this is the continuity what you're reading at the moment. Since Mark Wade's run takes place a little bit more currently than this, I tend to defer to that, plus it's in the main series. Here, it's implied that Jack and Maggie were not married and that they had a child outside of wedlock. Does this really topple anything? No. It is what it is. It doesn't necessarily absolve Maggie of what she does here. Now, she mentions real quick, before I forget, she mentions that she and the sisters named Matthew, which makes perfect sense. His full name is Matthew Michael Murdoch. Matthew, of course, is the apostle, and the name means gift of Yahweh. The middle name Michael is named after the archangel, and that name means who is like God. Further playing with these name meanings, Maggie is short for Margaret, and that name means pearl, St. Margaret, in fact, is the patron saint of expectant mothers. Maggie is actually the result of Frank Miller's run, so he clearly did his research. Jack, in turn, is short for Jonathan, and Jonathan means Yahweh has given. So looking at these names, the way that they play out, Jack's name means Yahweh has given, Matthew's name means gift of Yahweh. This was, in both instances of these characters, an accident, but a happy one. It makes perfect sense. And then, of course, St. Margaret being the saint of expectant mothers, Maggie is a minor influence, kind of the go-between between Jack and Matt. I like when things on a cosmic level kind of sync up and these name meanings actually mean what you're seeing on the page. And the thing that stood out to me about this final scene in this, again, Matt's an infant, about three to six months old. He's been forced on Jack. And I got this swell of genuine emotion looking at these pages. Not just the short emotional journey Jack takes in these few pages in which he goes from anger and hurt to embracing Matt, but more looking at that young infant Matt, much like Jack Murdoch not being a a tangible current character in the books, basically existing in flashbacks, Matt has generally been an adult for the majority of his career. We've seen short snippets of when he was younger, of varying length, but we've never seen him like this. This is Matt as an infant at his most helpless And with Jack screaming, we see the baby become scared. Progressively so. This is Matt. This is somebody we care about. This is a character we followed month to month for years and years, where we've spent a lot of time with him, and we're seeing him in his most primal form. And the man without fear is the baby with fear. And Jack apparently takes that same journey with us. It's very, very effective. The art nails it. The layouts are perfect. The progression works on such a strong, strong level. So when we get to the final page of Jack holding the infant, it's basically what we want to do. We want to comfort the young Matt. We want to comfort the baby. It's a character we're seeing as a is in a completely different light. And it's chock full of emotion. Plus, the final page of this story is Jack holding Matt, which made me think of some of the more powerful panels of Born Again. So again, we're not looking at an origin in the sense that we normally think of it. Typically, we meet the would-be hero, they go through some life-altering event, they adopt a superhero identity, and we're on our way. Here, we're seeing Matt from the time he enters Jack Murdoch's life, which is negotiable. It's been read before, again, that Jack and Maggie were married, so Jack would have been there when Matt was born. This, however, changes the paradigm. Matt is unexpected. Jack's not ready to be a father. He's a washed-up alcoholic prizefighter. This has been dropped on him out of nowhere. And in a painful, painful method, because the woman he loves just told him not only does she not love him, but the love that they shared, something he cherishes, is an abomination. I don't think it's unfair to say that this was a horrible thing for Jack that turned into something beautiful, which is conveyed perfectly in this final 
panel of the flashback before we go back to round one. And of course, at the end of the round, the issue ends, which takes us to issue number two. And issue number two's cover has a close-up of Jack Murdoch's gnarled face as he, in turn, is punched by his opponent. Again, blood is flying everywhere, the fist is crashing right into Jack's face. Same real idea as the first one. It's gruesome, it's meant to be, but at the same time, one little note is it doesn't look like the same opponent. And neither of them really look like the Creole we would come to know. Minor nitpick, I know. So let's take a look at the second issue of Battlin' Jack Murdoch. Round two. As the second round begins in the present, Jack's mind drifts back in time again to years after Infant Matt was dropped on his doorstep. Jack is sitting, reading a letter from Maggie, telling him to consider her dead because he has chosen a path that she can't follow. Matt, now eight years old, returns home after a fight. Matt fought another boy who accused Jack of being a bad man, but Matt insists his father would never hurt anybody. Later, Jack is hurting somebody. Once again, he is muscling a shop owner who owes the fixer money. Things get awkward when the owner's daughter arrives and the man begs Jack not to hurt her. This sends Jack into a rage as he insists he would never hurt a child. Frustrated, Jack goes back to Josie's for a drink, and the fearful look in the face of the shop owner's daughter haunts him. Jack snaps and barges into the fixer's office to quit, which goes about as well as one would expect a resignation from a criminal organization to go. The Fixer says that Jack knows too much to quit, but if he can stay sober, the Fixer will help Jack get back into boxing. Jack stays off the booze and goes back to the boxing gym to get back into fighting form. But one day, while at Josie's, Jack hears a scream from outside and rushes to find the shop owner that he was muscling beaten to death, and the man's daughter in tears screaming. Jack becomes depressed, and Matt comes home from another fight, which enrages his father even more. The two have an argument with Matt refusing to listen to his father's order. This escalates to Jack hitting Matt and the younger Murdoch runs away. It is days before Jack sees Matt again and the next time he does, it's after the fateful accident that took Matt's sight. Jack visits Matt in the hospital looking at his son who is now so weak and helpless and then down at his own hands. Once again, Jack is filled with rage. Angry with himself, he begins to punch the walls of the hospital. His mind comes back to the present as the second round ends and Jack thinks to himself, it is his turn to be weak. Okay, so, looking at this particular issue, we come back to the question I posed earlier, which is how much of the fight itself can Matt really take in? Is he really relying on Foggy's description? We're not sure, and the thing is, the irony is, Jack decides not to take the dive to prove to Matt that he's a champion, to be brave in front of his son, and Matt can't see this. Both in the literal sense, and possibly in the figurative. Now, it's possible that some of his senses are taking in what's happening down there, the smell of the gloves or sounds of the, the actual blows, which would differentiate between the fighters. Matt may be privy to this, but at the same time, we've got a roaring crowd around him. All kinds of smells. In fact, we see a vendor selling peanuts. Imagine the smells in that place, just the crowd of people and just the amount of stuff Matt is taking in. It's possible he doesn't see this at all which makes Jack's decision that much more painful. And of course, the story flashes back again. We see Jack reading a letter from Maggie. We're not sure if this is a new letter or the goodbye letter she wrote him. So I'm wondering if this is that original goodbye, and Jack's been stewing over this from time to time. When he's feeling low, he's feeling bummed, he pulls out that letter and just takes himself that much further. And the letter itself, holy jeez, you grow to hate Maggie a little bit. She tells Jack that he has chosen a path, a life choice that she can't follow, that she can't approve of. And she asks Jack to consider her dead. Now, we've heard of Dear John letters, but I think we have a whole new classification of Dear Jack letters. It'd be better if she just stabbed him with a knife. Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing that I thought about. Jack is leading a life that Maggie sees as unfit. She does not approve. She can't cooperate. She can't be a part of it, period. So, what does she do? She leaves her only son with him. To her estimation, Jack is not a good role model. He's not a good human being because of the path he's on, yet she leaves her child with him. Think about this. Maggie is in a nunnery, which probably has a lot of outreach programs to various orphanages, adoption agencies, etc. Instead of using those to put Matt in a home that she does feel is fit, because adoption is a pretty stringent process if you've ever looked into it. You go through a lot of legal hoops, a lot of things to prove you're financially viable, emotionally viable, your home is a place to cultivate great childhoods, etc. Instead of doing that, she leaves him with this man that she wants nothing to do with, that she wants to consider her dead. That's how much she feels towards Jack. 
that she wants him to consider her dead, not to pursue her, not to come around her, just write her off completely. That's her level of disapproval. For me, I can't see it. I'm not a, I'm not a parent. I will tell that in full disclosure. I have a dog, though. That's the best allegory I can give to you. When my wife and I went on vacation a few months ago, we were going to board the dog, and I was a nervous wreck. Even knowing that I'm boarding her with a vet that has cared for her since we've had her, that has cared about her health, has shown great compassion towards her, taking great care of her, I was a nervous wreck. And this was only for four days. I can't imagine handing a dog off to somebody, especially somebody I don't see as a good pet owner. So I can only imagine that's tenfold with a parent. So Maggie's logic doesn't make sense. And again, you grow to dislike her. The thing that I wonder, though, is Jack told Matt that Maggie was dead. Matt grew up thinking his mother was in the ground. Later to find out, nope, nope, totally different scenario, isn't it? But when you have things like this letter sitting around, certain little instances, Matt must have suspected along the way that his mother wasn't necessarily as dead as Jack made him believe. And it may not be a subject that Matt would even know how to bring up since Jack is clearly emotionally affected by anything relating to Maggie. So I wonder if that was always something between the two men, sort of a magnetic repulsion, if you will, where anytime they came close to broaching that topic, it was pushed away. And maybe that instance probably damaged their relationship to some extent. As we see here, Jack is put into a funk reading this letter and kind of gets in an argument with Matt. Now, granted, that leads to him telling Matt, you need to hit the books, the traditional study, be something, don't be like me. But still, I think this created a sort of distance between them. Not a great divide, but more of a, a pronounced ditch, if you will. We jump from one emotional scene to another as Jack is muscling a liquor store owner and the kid walks in. First off, just want to point out that there is a standee in the store that looks like a combination of, of Luigi, Popeye, and Captain America. This has no real bearing on the story, but it kept catching my attention every time I'd reread this. Just look in the background, you'll see it. More so, the main note is Jack realizes his limits. Jack realizes this is a place where he can't go as he looks at this child and the father says, please don't hurt her. Jack has limits, but they're not visible limits to others. And this is the moment where Jack realizes really what he's become and perhaps Maggie was right about his life choices. Jack didn't choose the thug life. The thug life chose him. And that's an absolutely true statement, even though it's, you know, a callback to gangster rap. However, when you think about it, somebody out there, like Slade, for example, did choose this life. They weren't muscled into it. They weren't taken advantage of in their emotional weakness. They sought it out. Look at Turk. He's been seeking out the criminal life since he was a boy. And those people don't have the limits Jack has. But Jack suddenly realizes Maggie is right. And he bursts into Sweeney's office. It's dumb and it's desperate. He wants out. But is it because he wants to build a better life? Is it because he wants to prove something to Maggie? We're not sure. And we never get a chance to find out. This may have been Jack's moment. If he had been allowed to walk away, who knows where things would have gone. Instead, we get a deal with the devil. Sweeney promises to put Jack into some fights, which we know where this ends. It's, it's, it's Faust, which is the ultimate deal with the devil tale. If you know the story of Faust, Faust was basically bored with life. He tries to kill himself. He ends up striking a deal with Mephistopheles, who is a demon who will serve him, which is what we're seeing here. Jack wants out of his life, but he ends up making a deal with the devil instead. Spoiler on Faust, the devil wins. And we know what Jack is going into. We, the reader, know how this ends, which makes it so much more potent to see this decision made. It's all a domino effect of small decisions leading up to one big one. To that end, we get a great transition. We go from open hands, shaking because they haven't had a drink, to bandaged hands, ready to train. We see a mindset change in Jack and something comes alive in him again. We get a little bit more progression on Josie and Jack. I can't decide if this is cliche or gold. It's very Rocky and Adrian. She clearly cares for him. He's not really noticing it. That whole thing. Of course, the tragedy has to happen. Again, Jack has limits. There's somebody out there who doesn't have those. And Jack sees that that liquor store owner that was his breaking point, well, wasn't somebody else's problem. They didn't mind killing the guy. That's the job. Jack was a tourist in the criminal trade. And one kind of there by gunpoint, by sorts. Whoever this was, and assumptively it's Slade, they volunteered. They're full-time employee. They're fully vested. They've got the 401k and everything. And they don't mind killing. And the sad thing is, as we get to the exchange between Jack and Matt that follows this, I don't think Jack saw the analog that was in front of him. You know, he didn't see him and Matt, father and son, in comparison to that father and daughter. 
that if something happened to him, Matt's all alone. Again, another small decision or small oversight that causes a big change in the future. It's really sad to think that that passed right by him, and that could have been a, a call to arms of sorts. That he needs to be a father, he needs to follow as close as he can the straight and narrow. But of course, this prompts a fight between the two of them, and it's horrible. Jack's a real jerk here. You don't always like him. This is very much warts and all. Very, very much. Especially here. Matt stands up to his father, and granted, his father is giving him good advice to some extent, that there's always going to be somebody bigger and stronger, which will serve Matt as Daredevil. But we're not here. We're not at Daredevil yet. We're at a young boy named Matt Murdock. And Jack is taking out his emotional turmoil on Matt. Let's not color it what it's not. This is abuse. Granted, Matt is being indignant and standing up to his father and saying no. Jack is taking it too far. And we do see a, a splinter of Daredevil in Matt. Matt has no fear. He has no problem standing up to his father. But the story wisely decides not to pursue Matt. Matt is not the focus here. We're looking at Jack. So we are seeing Matt through Jack's perceptions, rather than the other way around for once. And there is a small part of Jack that's proud of Matt for standing up, but at the same time, Jack's not in his right mind. He's got way too much going on in that head of his. And here's the part that will make you not like Jack. Matt runs out of the house after this fight, and is missing for days, for two days before he even thinks to look for Matt. Jack didn't look for Matt for two days. Now, while this frustrates me on a character level and a story level, it's also, on a technical level, a wise idea because this is warts and all. We're not seeing Jack being exalted by his son after his passing. We're seeing Jack as kind of an ass, kind of a failed father, and a failed human being at that. I mean, granted, he's like you and I, he's trying his best, but he's failing here. And you also really almost have to ask, was Maggie right? Granted, the decision to place a child, especially her child, in the care of somebody who's living a life she can't approve of is misguided at best, but she's not entirely wrong in her judgment of Jack. Jack is flawed. He's angry. He has no vehicle for his, his extreme emotions. The only thing he knows how to do is hit stuff. Now, retroactively, we don't see this through Matt's point of view. Matt doesn't remember this in the same way. Granted, he's not privy to some of the things going on in Jack's head and Jack's life because he was a kid and Jack wouldn't just tell him, hey, I'm muscling people for money and the fixers got me by the collar. Matt's not going to know that, but dang, it's, it's something where you just don't like Jack. And of course, this is where Matt gets in the accident and Jack is once again angry, punching walls in the hospital because he failed. Now, this has always been presented as a turning point for Jack, to some extent, where he realizes his failures as a father and steps up in a different way. But it didn't have to go this far. If Jack had perceived things a little bit differently and taken things to heart, for example, the liquor store murder. If he had seen that as an analog to he and Matt, if he had taken that in, if he'd made several decisions differently, minor decisions in some cases, major in others, who knows how this story would have played out. Now, from here, the story progresses kind of as you would expect it. I'm not going to get too far into issues three and four, but I do want to mention them. Because we see the romance with Josie kind of play out. Again, Rocky and Adrian, they have one great night together. Josie decides to bet on Jack with a year's worth of tips. Also, when Matt comes home from college for the summer, we see a new walking stick. This is important because it sets something up. Because later, Jack goes to Fogwell's and he's hassled by the Fixer's men who don't want him training because he's going to take a dive. But they don't count on the guy in a ski mask who happens to be at the gym that night. And that ends up being Jack's savior. And Jack's savior in the ski mask takes a punch to the face. And this is something that Jack recognizes will become a black eye. And in this fight, the savior uses a billy club, which he accidentally leaves behind when he runs away. The club is found later, and while Jack is messing with it, it extends out to look like Matt's cane. This all culminates with Jack in round four seeing Matt in the crowd with that black eye and putting it together. He gets it. Matt is strong. Matt's okay. Matt can make it on his own. And that immediately gave me a callback to Daredevil Minus One. There's a little bit of a segue, but hear me out. Daredevil Minus One was part of a Marvel initiative where all the ongoing series at that time had a negative one. Stories that took place before the first issue. Prequels. In Daredevil's issue, it involves Jack taking Matt to college, dropping him off for the first time, meeting Foggy, while on the campus, while Jack is spending the night, Matt and Jack go to a watering hole nearby where some jerks pick on Matt. Jack helps Matt take the high road and just leave, but Matt can't quite deal with that. So while he thinks Jack is sleeping, Matt sneaks out. Jack follows him and they go back to that watering hole. Again, Matt's not aware Jack is there, but Matt makes an example out of them in his traditional way. 
Oh, look, you tripped over my cane, etc. Basically, beating them up without beating them up. And I bring that up because of a similarity to this story, and it's considered more canon since it was part of the original series. But I want to use that to make this point. Jack died knowing Matt would be strong. Jack knew Matt could defend himself. Jack knew what Matt was capable of. Very much like uh, what we saw in Man of Steel when Jonathan Kent saw young Clark in the cape. Jack saw what Matt would be to some extent, and that may have played into the decision to stand up to the boxer, to not take the dive, whether that's Creel or Davis, you decide. But Jack made a very clear decision to not take the dive, to go against what he was told to do and what would be kind of the smart thing to do. It's not quite Obi-Wan Kenobi sacrificing himself to make sure Luke escapes, but it's a big component in making that decision, knowing that his son was capable, knowing what he's made of, and being able to move on. If he's not there, Matt's fine, but he might as well show Matt one last time what he's capable of, make him proud. And that brings up a, a really tough question, though. Again, Jack made a decision. He knew the consequences of that decision. He wasn't surprised when Slade and the Fixer met him after the fight. The ramifications of not taking the dive, going against that, were clear. So, did Jack Murdoch commit a form of suicide? No matter how noble his ideals were, no matter what he was really trying to prove, he knew that by knocking Creel out, Fixer and Slade were going to kill him. He had seen examples of this in this miniseries. He knew who these men were. And when you think about it, Jack didn't think much of himself. To him, he was an uneducated pug. The only thing he was good at was hitting things. So maybe Jack thought that in his death, he would have a more noble cause than if he continued to live. It's a frightening idea to think about, isn't it? That this person that Matt looks up to, and the moment that defined Daredevil in many, many ways, one small decision could have really been put in a different light and looked at as a potential suicide by cop or suicide by fixer in this case. Definitely makes you look at Jack differently, doesn't it? So let me move into my final verdict on battling Jack Murdoch, as well as Daredevil 101 as a whole. This is an important miniseries to me. It was a turning point to me because to understand what makes Daredevil tick, there's no greater source than his father. The thing that he looks to for strength and for guidance, and the very thing that formed Daredevil, as well as Matt Murdock. Jack, as a character, again, we don't see him alive in the regular comics. But he looms over Matt as either a guardian angel or a specter of failure, whichever way you want to use it. The thing that stood out to me about this miniseries is it's a surprisingly human tale. It's not a common thing to see on the stands. The superhero in the title never shows up. The official title is Daredevil Battle and Jack Murdock. We never see Daredevil. We see Matt. We see him in a ski mask. But we never see him donning the red duds. We don't get the neat progression like we did in Man Without Fear or Daredevil Yellow. This is Jack's story. It's a story of a man who had bad decisions to make, hard decisions to make, and was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And again, we're seeing the battle for Jack Murdoch's soul. And the thing is, we're never, ever going to get a definitive answer of whether Jack won that battle or lost it because we've got that idea of perhaps suicide by boxer. The thing I appreciated about this the most was that we really saw Jack, warts and all, just as he would be. Again, I don't consider this canon completely, but the attitude and the depiction really made me look at Jack differently. We don't always like him. In fact, there are parts where we absolutely hate him. Not looking for a son after two days? Ridiculous. But on the other side of the coin, we feel for him. When Maggie tells him, not only here's your son, I don't want anything to do with you, but goes further to say what we did was wrong. The life you live is wrong. We feel for Jack. We feel those barbs. And we feel, especially in that first issue in the last sequences, we feel Jack's changes. And the attempts to be a good, honorable man. Does he always attain that? No, not by, by a long shot. But he's like us. We do everything we can day to day to be good people. To do our best and be the best versions of ourselves. We don't always succeed. It's one of the most human tales I've ever read. And the fact that this comic exists is magical. Now, overall, it's a fairly brisk read as a miniseries, but worth it. We see the core of Jack. And through that, we see the core of Matt Murdock and how these men are alike even though we never see them side by side in the regular comics. So very much worth the read. Again, somebody is going to win issues of these. But Daredevil 101 has been all about starting points. Potential starting points, intermediate starting points. I don't consider Battle and Jack Murdoch a great starting point. Overall, to rank what we've covered in Daredevil 101, the ideal starting point remains Wade's Daredevil run. 
It's ideal for the new reader. It's a great way to continue into the current run, or what is going to be shortly the past run, but a great set of stories, really engaging and insightful look at Daredevil. Even though I don't consider Battle and Jack Murdoch an ideal starting point, it does accentuate very clearly and very strongly the ideal that Wade is shooting for. So it's a great companion piece. So start with Wade's first issue, follow through to the next first issue and beyond. Those two sequences were probably the best place to go. Dark Knights number one through three was just a good, well-told story. I will not dissuade you from that. It's just not necessarily the ideal starting point that Wade's issue is. And again, Battle and Jack Murdoch is for real context to Wade's Daredevil expands that idea in a way that doesn't damage the existing story. It just gives you a moment of saying, oh, that makes sense why Matt would do that. As far as Ultimate Daredevil and Elektra, it's fine if you're an Elektra fan. It's a topical story. It's a very good topical story, but Matt's mostly absent. If you're looking for Daredevil, that's probably not the miniseries. So that leaves Guardian Devil, and where does Guardian Devil fit? If Wade's run, both of those first issues continuously, are the ideal starting points or continuing points, Battle and Jack Murdoch is a nice accent to that as well as Dark Knights, Smith's is the intermediate level. If you were somebody who left Daredevil in, say, the 80s or 90s, I know, for example, Fall from Grace was a big dividing point where people kind of jumped off because of the new costume and things of that nature. Or if you left around the time Nascenti was writing, then I would go ahead and steer you towards Guardian Devil. Good Daredevil story, a lot of relevance to that story as we're going to see much further down the road when I do finally get to that in full. But it leads into a really great run going forward as well. Because you have David Mack and parts of a whole, you have Echo, you have of course Bendis and Brubaker. It would be the beginning of a journey that doesn't deviate from what you knew and liked about Daredevil in the 80s and 90s, but adds to it, refines it, and redirects it in an organic, comfortable fashion. So overall, we've covered six number one issues, one number two, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun to deviate from what we normally do. Because I've been covering classic Daredevil quite a while, I'm going to be going back to covering that, just not immediately. So that's going to conclude Daredevil 101. But thank you for putting up with my erratic choices. I hope somebody somewhere got a lot of benefit from these first issues. And I hope, you know, I hope we made some Daredevil fans. And for those that are wondering, yes, next week the theme music will be back to normal. But I am going to take a break because my throat is getting dry. So I'm going to play a quick promo. And then when I return, we're going to cover every email in my email inbox as of the date of this recording just to make sure they're all taken care of in one fell swoop. So I will be right back after this promo for Comic Book Fight Club. Oh, hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus? Or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks versus the Smurfs? And of course, the Titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen? And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so <laughs> hungry. I'm going to get weaker, and, 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 and Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, uh, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the, out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh, 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 oh. No! No! Oh, I tap she, out! I tap out! You are a sick, out. sick man. I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might have to hit Google Image Search here. So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters here only on Comic Book Fight Club. 
You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. All right, I am back, ready to cover emails. You know, folks, emails are something that's really important to me. It means you took the time to listen to the show, take it in, and took the time to actually type something up. So I really want to let you know I appreciate them. I'm going to make a better effort to be more timely with the emails in the future. And of course, as mentioned at the top of the show, the new email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. But with no further ado, I'm going to jump right in. The first email this week is from Russell Bragg. The subject line is episode 41, The Stilt Man Cometh. Russell writes, Hi Dave, I hope no one has been giving you grief over not continuing the Frank Miller run and going back to pretty much the beginning of Dee Dee's career. I don't mind in the least personally, as I stated in previous emails, I'm pretty much a blank slate on Daredevil. I know the name, his secret identity and occupation, and what he looks like. I'm learning with each podcast, and thank you for that. I was wondering if the Daredevil TV show has come to Netflix yet. And when it does, are you going to be discussing it any? Don't really know what else to ask or say other than to let you know I'm listening every week and look forward to every episode. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia, host of the DC Comics Presents show. Russell added, P.S. I wanted to thank you for pimping my show and the kind words you gave to me on a previous episode. It means a lot. Well, Russell, actually, your show means a lot because, I, and I may be misreading it, but it's almost a spinoff of sorts of Superman in the Bronze Age, which I used to do in, in back in the day with Charlie Niemeyer. It's a good choice of topics, really fun run. And of course, folks, you can find the DC Comics Presents show at dccpshow.wordpress.com. And Russell, just to let you know, nobody's given me grief or hard time about going back to the beginning. In fact, most of the response has been really, really positive and people are really enjoying the episodes, which is a great relief for me because I was concerned about getting grief, about people just getting upset. But no, that's not been the case. Everybody has been on board and enjoying the show so far. And I was talking with Paul Sabataro. I did a recent guest appearance on Back to the Bins at TwoTrueFreaks.com. And Paul and I were talking about the fact that, you know, the Miller stuff has been discussed quite a bit here and there. And I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to discuss it more. But a lot of the episodes and the issues I'm covering haven't been covered elsewhere. So it really does kind of open up to a new level. And hopefully I am educating you and others. Or in turn can sometimes be educated. I'm learning more and more with each episode myself. The further and further I get into Daredevil, even some of the bad stories seem fun. But we're going to find out just uh, just how far that's going to go, as a lot of the classic stories I'm going to be choosing for the future in 2015 are going to be randomly selected, just to make sure I'm not cherry-picking the good ones. As far as the Netflix show, it has been out by the time you hear this. I did a special on uh, April 15th, talking about the 13 episodes. So look for that in your feed if you haven't already listened to it. I know time travel's weird, so by the time you hear this, that episode will be out. But thank you again for dropping a line, Russell. We're going to hear again from Russell in just a moment. But next up is an email from Jason Sandberg, who has a subject line, The First Part of Your Frank Miller Coverage. Jason writes, Dave, welcome back. Your pause in the coverage of the Frank Miller era prompted me to send some feedback. In several earlier episodes, you'd spent time discussing the innovations that Miller brought to comic book penciling. He started with a love of Will Eisner and then began playfully experimenting with page layout and panel pacing. As someone who was buying these issues off the spinner rack, I want to mention that Miller should also be credited with downplaying the yellow omniscient narrator caption boxes and the puffy thought bubbles. I could be wrong, but Miller was the earliest champion of the internal monologue caption boxes. They're everywhere nowadays, but I recall a sense of novelty that they brought to Miller's storytelling on Daredevil. I'm glad you're mixing up what you'll be covering in 2015. I think all the listeners want you to follow your fancy. If a hobby feels like work, then it's not being done correctly. But remember, you don't owe anyone a weekly show. I'm looking forward to your reactions and reviews of the Netflix Daredevil. I'm also looking forward to your eventual coverage of Daredevil 185. Guts is one of my favorite issues. Thank you, Jason Sandberg. And Jason included links to his website, jasonsandberg.com, as well as jasonsandberg.com slash ebooks.htm. So check out his work there. And you know what's weird, Jason? You're absolutely right. I took those captions for granted because, like you said, they're everywhere now. But I totally passed me by, and you're absolutely right. So when I return to Miller's run, I'm going to have to make sure I point that out and give you credit. So I appreciate that, Jason. And, you know, here's the thing. No, in a grand scheme, I don't owe anybody a weekly show, but I set out to make the show weekly. The promo says it's here weekly every Sunday. Part of what appeals to me 
in terms of podcasting is getting that show out every week. It's, it's the challenge in some cases that I really relish. It's fun to get it out. It's fun to say, okay, here's another one out the door. Here's another one out the door. And the first Sunday following my hiatus, when there was no Dave's Daredevil podcast, was extremely depressing for me. Surprisingly so, because I had gotten used to that coming out like clockwork on Sunday, and suddenly it was gone. So for me, I do want to get it out weekly. I'm really looking forward to getting back to the Miller coverage, which looks more and more like beginning of 2016. And right now I have a few books I've been looking down the road on where I'm excited about some of this classic stuff. So thank you for writing in. Great call out on the caption boxes. Next up is an email from David Loudon. Subject line is caliber of show. David writes, Dear Dave, just want to point out there's two D's in each word. Dear Dave, I know I've just emailed you, but I wanted to say I've listened to 32 episodes of your show in about two to three weeks. It would have been 33, but I'm saving 174 or episode 31 because I'm waiting on it to arrive as this issue was released the month I was born and I wanted to read along with Dave. I have the Batman issue of that month, which I call my birthright. Just wanted to add to my previous long-winded email that the caliber of your show is exceptional. Between your locating of Josie's Bar to the semiotic reading of panels, it's of an intellectual caliber of a film, English lit degree. When you were reading the connotative text of the scene between Daredevil and Elektra when Matt lost his radar, I had to stop what I was doing and give total attention. Love the show, Dave. And you know, I'm just going to tell you, I was I was almost terrified to read this because it made me blush. I appreciate the praise, I do, but I never know what to do with praise. I'm just not good at taking compliments. But I'm glad you're listening to the show and enjoying it. And you know, the funny thing is, I wonder from time to time if reading into it from that connotative standpoint, from just digging in, if I'm reading something that's not there, I know I've had to have at some point, especially with some of the classic stories, just reading something that's just not the author's intent or just completely misreading something. But it is Dave's Daredevil podcast, not Daredevil expert podcast. So I just, I see what I see. And I, that's what I give to the show is what I see in the comics. But I appreciate you me emailing in again. Thanks again, David. And next up is a return visit from Mr. Russell Bragg, who has another email subject line, episode 42, A Blind Man Shall Lead Them. Russell writes, hi, Dave. Great episode. I think my favorite stretchy heroes go in the exact opposite order of yours. Mr. Fantastic, then Elongated Man, Red Costume being my favorite, then Plastic Man. I will admit to watching the Plastic Man cartoon as a kid, but the last straw was introducing Baby Plas. I enjoyed the comic you read. I didn't see the cover until I looked on your website. It is awesome. I question for you. I could look it up, but I'm lazy. Did Daredevil appear in a Fantastic Four comic first, or did the Fantastic Four appear in a Daredevil comic first? Also, did the FF meet Matt Murdock first as a lawyer or DD? Hope the questions aren't confusing. Anyway, great show, and know that I eagerly await each and every episode each and every Sunday. Keep up the great work. Russell Bragg, Clarksburg, West Virginia. Actually, Russell, your question is not confusing at all. In fact, they get one answer. The Fantastic Four first met Matt Murdock, looking at hiring somebody to go over their lease in Daredevil number two. So they met Matt first in Daredevil's comic first. All in one fell swoop. They were asking about their lease on the Baxter building. Matt went to research it and ran into Electro. Wackiness ensued. And you know, I gotta admit, I have the Plastic Man cartoon on DVD, and I was really enjoying it, but Baby Plaz changed the dynamic, especially since, for the most part, Plastic Man was somewhat oblivious to Penny's advances. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they're married with a kid. Well, that's awkward. Never quite got into Baby Plaz, I'm just gonna be honest with you. But thank you again, Russell. Appreciate you dropping another line and listening every Sunday. Next up is an email from Mark L., subject line, new to the podcast. Mark writes, hey, I just listened to your latest podcast and look forward to hearing more. I really like the idea of a Daredevil 101. I've always liked Daredevil, but I'm new to comics in general. About a year. What direction do you see Daredevil comics going post-Wade Samney? Will McDuffie survive the fate of old Murdoch lovers? Have a great day, Mark L. And Mark, I do expect that once Wade and Samney wrap up their run, the book will probably go back to being a slightly darker book. I think it will retain some of the humor and some of the, the great stuff that Wade has brought to the table. My prediction for the next Daredevil writer, and I can put the, I'll put this down on the record, is Charles Soule. There have been some hints, but nothing really concrete. But I do think Charles Soule will be writer. If I had my druthers, the artist I would put on the book would be Todd Nock. Nock just recently finished up a run on Nightcrawler, as that book was canceled with issue 12, and it is spectacular art he produces. And he's a heck of a nice guy on Twitter. So if you see Todd Nock on Twitter, follow him. He's a great guy, great artist. And as far as Kirsten surviving, that's a great question. I think to kill her 
would go counter to what the character has been to date. And the thing that she's been is the opposite of most of Matt's lovers. She's stable. She doesn't put up with Matt's crap. She's strong. She's she's the anti-Karen Page, is what she is. And I don't mean that to insult the character of Karen Page, but it is what it is. But at the same time, I don't necessarily know that I want anybody but Wade writing her. So if I have my druthers, I would like for Karen to survive, but go her own way, which is entirely possible. But great question, and I do appreciate you making sure I got that email. I know that you actually ended up being the first email in the mail at daredevilpodcast.com email address. And congratulations on that. And our next message is actually a message from Facebook from W. Blaine Dowler, sometime guest host on this show. And he was talking to me about Stiltman physics, and I almost forgot this message. He offhandedly mentioned it. I'm like, ah, I know I forgot something. Simple matter is I check my messages and such first thing in the morning, which is a bad plan because A, I don't entirely comprehend everything I'm reading, having just rolled out of bed. B, I tend to acknowledge it, go about my day, getting my head wrapped around being awake or whatnot, and then I forget to respond or put it into somewhere where I can reference it. So I apologize this is a little bit late, so I apologize to Blaine. But Blaine sent me an email, still have nine minutes left in the podcast, just got to work. I'd be happy to expand on your accurate explanation of why Stiltman can't step over a bridge if you want. More to the point, I think I can fix the plot hole with timing. Caxton made the stilts for industrial use, not to be worn. With that in mind, there are probably four, not two, so Wilbur could have planted two at Caxton's house in advance and had no need to go anywhere near that home when fighting Daredevil while wearing the other two. And I remember a light bulb going off when reading this. That's about the only thing I remember from a morning. But I think that is an excellent no prize. Because at the very least, you're going to have a prototype version of the suits laying around. As much as I want to argue Marvel science, you know, scientists experimenting on themselves and whatnot, I think this is a pretty logical no prize and I can live with it. And as far as expanding on the Stiltman of physics, Blaine, that would be great. I don't know if you want to drop me an email or an audio or just do an episode of your excellent podcast, Comic Book Physics, over at Bureau42.com. But yeah, I would like to learn more about the physics of Stiltman from somebody who actually knows physics. Yes, that would be great, Blaine. I would appreciate that, and thank you for dropping a message. And the last message for this week is again from Dave Loudon. Subject line is the man without mail, which I thought was hilarious. This marked the second email to come through the mail at daredevilpodcast.com email. And Dave wrote, Dear Dave, just saw on your Twitter feed that your mailbox has had to change. I don't know if you got the below emails, but I wanted to let you know how much I love the show, so I've resent. In the build-up to Daredevil Netflix series in Age of Ultron, I'm doing a look back at Marvel adaptations through the years, something of a Marvel at Marvel, coined it. That's right, that is copyright Dave Loudon. Now that that's recorded, it's official. Your show has returned me to my love of Hornhead, and I've been filling my comic book blanks recently, including the first issue penciled by Miller, 158, and first appearance of Electra. So thank you for that. Cheers, Dave. And I'm glad to hear that, that this show has in some way inspired somebody to start buying Daredevil. Not that I want to necessarily inspire anybody to spend money, but if that's an unfortunate side effect of fandom, so be it. And just to anybody who hasn't heard their email on the show, I just want to point out, I have now cleaned out both email inboxes. This show is being recorded literally at the very end of March. So if you have not heard your email, please check your sent items. Please resend it to mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Your email is very important to me, so I definitely want to hear from you. And I apologize for the inconvenience. I wish there was a way around it, but my original email was just simply not getting anything. I even tried sending emails to it. Nothing locked up. I guess the silver lining is, hey, no spam, right? But I am going to call it a day. Of course, you can always visit the show at daredevilpodcast.com, where you can find links for the iTunes, RSS feed, and Stitcher. Feel free to subscribe through there. If you want to drop me a line, there's a contact form right there on the website. Or you can email directly at mail at daredevilpodcast.com. And the Facebook page is sadly lacking. So if you have not, please go to facebook.com slash daredevilpodcast and like the show from there. Or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder. Next week begins a series of episodes, so I'm actually going to be on a little bit of a vacation. Not that you're going to notice. What I have done over time, since the show has come back and since before, I guess, is put back episodes for a rainy day. Things that didn't fit into a regular run. So what you'll be hearing over the next four weeks are several of those episodes. So you're going to be seeing some Daredevil coverage from Marvel Fanfare and Marvel Comics Presents. There will be an episode that involves some delicious snack cakes and Daredevil. And an episode that, well, Daredevil's not in. You'll see what I mean when you get there. 
But over the next four weeks, rainy day episodes, and then I will be back to classic Daredevil on episode 60. Looking at towards the end of the Stan Lee era, can you believe we're almost at the end of the 60s? Time flies, I guess, when you're skipping issues. But until we meet again, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.